Welcome to the Masters of Data podcast, the podcast where we talk about how data affects our businesses and our lives, and we talk to the people on the front lines of the data revolution. And I'm your host, Ben Newton. So far in our two episodes where we touched on the European General Data Protection Regulation, that's GDPR, we talked to two Americans. When I took a trip to Europe, it seemed like the obvious thing to do was to try to find a European and see how they think about it. And I found the right guy. Bill Mew is the founder and owner at Mew Area Consulting and a cloud strategist at UK Cloud. He is in the middle of the data privacy discussion, both for GDPR as well as for Brexit, where Britain's leaving the European Union. Turns out it means a lot for data privacy. Listening to Bill was like taking a rapid course in data privacy. Bill met me in a little conference room in Moorgate, London, England. Let's dig in. Welcome, everybody, to the Masters of Data podcast, and I'm really excited to have Bill Mew here with me. I appreciate you taking the time. You're now the second person I've talked to this morning that came on the train, so um, hopefully your trains weren't late. No, no, it's a smooth journey, and uh, the weather's not too bad here in London today. <laughs> That's good. Bill is a uh, is the founder and owner of Mew Air Consulting, and you're also cloud strategist at UK Cloud. You have your fingers in a lot of things from what we were talking through before. One of the, the first things I usually ask when people come on this podcast is kind of, what's your journey? Like, how did you get to where you are? What's your background? Well, it's been a fairly random path. I started out as a weapons engineering officer in the Royal Navy. I dealing, saw that. Dealing with uh, missile guidance systems and all sorts. But I was pensioned out. I was very ill and, and I had to go and find something useful to do. And I stayed in the high-tech environment doing mm. a lot of PR and marketing. And I, I ended up spending 16 years at IBM. Um, You may have heard of them. Yes, yes. a couple of times. (laughs) And I rose to be the global head of the financial services sector, um, corporate communications for IBM. I was the only person in IBM's 100-year history to lead a sector uh, globally from outside the US, and I did it from here in London, uh, steering uh, their um, largest sector, a sort of a $26 billion business, which is the big gorilla within the fintech environment. People make a big deal around fintech, but the business IBM does in that arena arena is still the largest by some margin, and I helped steer them through the financial crisis, which was an interesting era to have been on, on the bridge at the time. I left IBM, did some work for some real cloud specialists like uh, Compare the Cloud, uh, working as an analyst and journalist. And uh, and then I took on a role at uh, UK Cloud, who uh, in the UK are the main champions for mm-hmm. cloud technology in the public sector. Yeah. I'm trying to transform the way that uh, the government provides services to the public in order to digitize and to provide truly digital services yeah. uh, hosted in the cloud. Um, everything from your the way that you apply for your driving license to your tax returns to everything that you could do in order to make the experience better and to improve the efficiency and actually sort of deliver services that are better for less. When you say that, you remind me of a couple conversations I've had before, because I I actually did consulting for the U.S. government as well for a long time. And I I found in the U.S. government, they were not always ahead of the technology, let's put it that way. A lot of what I heard is actually the the U.K. government actually is more technology forward than I would have have thought in a lot of areas, right? Well, the the U.K. has taken a big uh, stride in that direction. Francis Maud became cabinet secretary at the time of the coalition government, and they desperately needed to save money at that particular time. And they they latched on to technology as possibly a means of doing that. They adopted a a cloud-first model, and they created the government digital service. And this was pioneering in its time. And this was the time that UK Cloud was established. And it was there in the right place at the right time. It capitalised on that opportunity. And indeed, only uh, recently, um, the United Nations uh, did a 
a ranking of various different governments. And the UK was uh, deemed to be the number one digital government in the world. Really? Um, for a lot wow. of the work that it has done in this arena. However, I, I would argue that some of that progress could be argued to have stalled more recently. Mm. Uh, you could say that the government's uh, focus was somewhat on uh, something called Brexit at the moment, <laughs> which I'm sure we'll come back to talk about. But it, it, without joking, it is a massive distraction for the government yeah. here in the UK. Yeah. Uh, and there's a big argument about whether some of the momentum around uh, digital enablement and uh, digital transformation has actually been lost. That makes a lot of sense, and I definitely want to come back to that. When you and I were talking before, I've actually had a couple conversations about GDPR, and one of the things I definitely wanted to do here, I've been talking to Americans about GDPR. <laughs> so, you know, now we're, we're after the date, and it's live. Yeah. What's your perception of how it's going and, and what, what you're seeing? What, what are you seeing on the ground here? We've been preparing it for a very long time. There are some people who maybe have had a little bit of a shock that suddenly GDPR has <laughs> appeared yeah. out of nowhere. Yeah. But it actually, it's been coming for a very long time. Yeah. And, and most organizations have been putting a lot of work into preparing. One of the things that I've been doing to help prepare was um, there was a, a privacy campaigner called Max Schrems who was mm. behind the original challenge against Facebook on the privacy grounds that brought uh, Safe Harbor to an end and that had to be replaced by Privacy Shield. And Max is still very active in this arena, and one of the things he was trying to do at the end of last year was to crowdfund a new NGO called None of Your Business. Which, <laughs> which is... you surprised me with before. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm not saying it's None of Your Business, that's just the name of the organization. And we wanted to get this organization off the ground because there are DPAs or, or the regulators in all yeah. different European countries, and in the UK, that is the Information Commissioner's Office. Right. But those Organizations have limited resources and a limited focus. They're going to focus on the major transgressions. They're going to focus on policy in the different countries. But they're not massively resourced. If you want to have someone to champion the rights of the individuals in the country and possibly challenge the way that some of the technology giants are behaving, you need a slightly different approach and you possibly need some sort of pan-European class action uh, uh, organization to take cases forward. And we brought uh, none of your business together to try and hold the major global organization, organizations to account. And indeed, one of the first uh, legal challenges following the introduction of GDPR was by none of your business and Max in the, uh, the organization trying to, to bring a case forward against Facebook and Google. But back in December of last year, they were struggling to get the crowdfunding off the ground. So I, I stepped in and helped Max with a big Twitter storm and some publicity. And, and thankfully, we got the thing funded and it's now off the ground. That's great. And, and hopefully, the business model that it has of supporting various different uh, legal challenges and being self-funding the way it does that um, will enable it to represent in individuals across Europe for generations to come. When I hear you explain it, Bill, it would be odd for me to think that that sounds a little bit like civil rights type of organization, like uh, a nonprofit. There, there, there are, we have a lot of interests in common with the ACLU or the EFF. Yeah. In fact, they have uh, common topics or campaigns that they would lead. But we're particularly focused on Europe and yeah. on privacy in particular. Uh, it doesn't mean that there aren't other organizations that would collaborate with. Yeah. And this is, this is a, is a broader topic than just that type of campaigning yeah. because uh, obviously there are many implications for data sharing. And it's not just personal data. There's all sorts of uh, data that's shared and there are all sorts of 
of derogations under GDPR where there are exceptions. So you have journalists who have an exception, so they're allowed to to report the news um, without being asked to take it down because you don't want it to appear. You can't challenge the security services and ask them to expunge your criminal record (laughs) or or take you off a watch list, otherwise that would make life very easy for the, the people who are a threat out there. So there are very sensible derogations across GDPR, and it's understanding, look, this is here for very sensible reasons. It is here to protect our privacy. And Tim Cook of Apple has recently come out and said, privacy is a human right. And that's the way it's viewed here in in Europe. There's a slightly different perspective in the US where the the authorities in the US have a slightly greater emphasis on surveillance and security than they do on privacy. The current administration in the first week of its um, formation, there was a presidential order saying that privacy or the regulations in the US for privacy applied only to US citizens and residents and not to anyone like the Europeans who existed outside, which is yeah. um, somewhat at odds with our perspective. But I come on to talk away the, the possible implications of that and other moves that the US have made would have on the very delicate relationship called Privacy Shield, which protects data sharing between Europe and America at this moment in time, mm-hmm. and the Cloud Act that uh, has possibly taken things one step further. When you explain it that way, I've one of the previous podcasts I talked with uh, George Gerchow, he's a CISO over at Sumologic, and one of the things he had said was about, he had the feeling that at some point we were going to have to have an international organization to, to deal with this. Like It seems to be getting at what you're saying. You can't just consider data in one geography. It, 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 it bleeds you know, across the world with global trade, right? Uh, possibly a, a good way of exemplifying this is to focus on Brexit and the challenges that yeah. we have here in the UK. Yeah. Brexit is a very complex issue, and a lot of the news headlines have been around, well, what's going to happen at the border, especially the border between Northern Ireland and Southern Ireland, in terms of goods, but only a certain amount amount of our trade is in goods. There's a lot of trade in services and there's a lot of digital trade as well. And in terms of the way we trade, every single transaction typically involves goods of some sort, product services or whatever, going in one direction, payment going in the other direction unless it's free and uh, and nothing's really for free. And you need a certain amount of data going in both directions. So you need common standards. And, And it's the data element in that which is critical here because the UK wants to establish itself as a trusted nation because we have very highly respected laws. We have very highly respected adherence to our, right. our laws and codes of conduct. And therefore, in many people's eyes, the UK is a trusted nation. And we want to establish ourselves in, in the post-Brexit era as a trusted place for data to be held. But in order for that to be correct, we need to have the right data sharing relationship with Europe. And Europe and ourselves need to have the right data sharing relationship with America. And many people have criticised Privacy Shield, the existing relationship that covers data sharing um, between Europe and America. There have been a number of moves in the US typically around the the earlier executive order I mentioned, a number of other different regulatory steps, and also the Cloud Act, which actually is a a step that the US made unilaterally, which in many ways contradicts the, the provisions of equality that are outlined in Privacy Shield. 
Shield. Now, where um, did the Privacy Shield come from? Is that something that was agreed Pri to? Privacy in Shield came out of the ashes of Safe Harbor okay. and was hurriedly negotiated and was agreed to by both Europe and America right. to allow us to share data and to, to keep it. And when Safe Harbor, its predecessor, fell apart, trade didn't grind to a halt overnight. That there weren't the adequate provisions for regulatory and legal protection for data sharing. And you need to have those. Now, there are many concerns by many of the privacy organizations that you've mentioned earlier that many of the provisions under Privacy Shield have been undermined. That there should be an ombudsman in the US, yeah. which hasn't been appointed. Right, right. There should be a number of uh, means of redress, which are found to be wanting. There should be the right judicial oversight. And there shouldn't be so the sort of extraterritorial, uh, unilateral extraterritorial reach that the Cloud Act uh, yeah. enforces. And therefore, Europe needs to sort of reassess privacy sealed at certain intervals. There were a number of criticisms made at the last assessment. I believe there'll probably be more to come. And there are some challenges by the privacy campaigners, such as Max and others, against Privacy Shield, which means that its future is in doubt. I mean, where do you see that going? I mean, where, where's, what's kind of like your prediction for where, how this is going to work out over the um, I'm not sure that I would be having a great deal of confidence in the longevity of Privacy Shield. There, there is unfortunately a mismatch in the cultural attitudes in Europe and America, yeah. which has been exemplified by GDPR. GDPR in Europe has been brought into force because we see privacy as a human right. In America, there is a different orientation. And as I said, there's a slightly a greater emphasis on security and surveillance. And there are people challenging, like the ACLU and EFF, challenging that all the way. But that is a, is a very different environment. To sort of have the, the sort of alignment that you need mm. to make Privacy Shield work, especially with the current administration not really putting any weight behind the yeah. ombudsman and the enforcement, I don't think it is sustainable. Then you look a little bit closer to home between Europe and the UK. I mean, the UK has got some really difficult negotiations ahead of it just on the, the product and services front. Right. And they haven't even got on to talking about data sharing yet. And the UK has chosen, for a very sensible reason, to be GDPR compliant in order to smooth the flow of data with Europe. Right. But in the UK, we also have another law, what we call the Snoopers Charter, which has been found wanting and criticised. <laughs> well, it's the nickname for it. It's the Regulatory pa Investigative Powers Act, but it's nicknamed the Snoopers Charter, and it is seen in that way by by many privacy activists, yeah. and it has been criticised by the European courts and also by the UK courts, who feel that the judicial oversight is not sufficient. And um, what does that what does that allow to happen? So is this like the, the government it can means, actually do it means or? that um, telecom providers, internet service providers need to keep a record and a track of, ah, of okay. calls and, and traffic and uh, and whatever. And those records can be accessed by the police who need to do investigations. But you need a level of judicial oversight to make sure that that's not used willy-nilly, that it's only used where there is a, a merit in its use and where there's some judicial oversight to ensure that this is just for serious crime. Is that uh, similar to the FISA court in the U.S.? Is uh, it, is FISA it, is, is a far more exacting and, and severe and, and secretive arrangement, but, yeah, but there are yeah. some parallels. Okay. So what we need to do is to ensure that uh, some of the European concerns around 
the Snoopers Charter aren't used against us in the negotiations, that we're able to have a, a successful conclusion to that and that we're able to share data with Europe. And that would uh, give us a, a reasonable position post-Brexit with our European colleagues need to re-examine um, Privacy Shield. Um, and the courts may do that for us and that may fall apart. And then we need to re-examine where things are going. And you talk about the need for an international regulator. Well, we're rapidly having an international de facto standard here because yeah, yeah. GDPR has come into force. And if global companies want to trade in Europe, they have to be GDPR right, compliant. Right, right. And that means that most global organizations have found themselves moving in that direction anyway. And GDPR is rapidly becoming a, a, an almost de facto uh, standard. And many organizations such as Facebook and, and, and Apple and, and uh, Microsoft have said, well, actually, we're going to look at GDPR as a standard not only for the, what we do in Europe, but what we do worldwide. And therefore, we may see GDPR becoming a global standard uh, by default. And it's very much the way that, that Europe is leading a lot of the privacy debate yeah. here because there's not so much concern or not so much emphasis put on in the US, which is shown by the lack of, a, of an ombudsman in place to oversee the privacy shield. When you say that, too, I mean, one of the things that I've, I've had a couple of discussions about, and you know, particularly coming from like a US perspective, but it does seem like there is a... There's been a change in attitudes. Now, you've got the whole political realm that's always going to affect it because whatever the attitudes on the street are, there's always the, the, the question about whether the political you know, establishment, wherever it is, is responding to that, right? But it, it does seem like their political attitudes are changing because, you know, in the U.S. with the stuff happening with Facebook and with, with the elections and with hackers allegedly influencing the election, it does seem like there's more of a awareness. Okay, I, I think in Europe there was always a slightly different orientation. We've always had um, the European Charter of Human Rights and, and a greater emphasis on privacy on this side of the Atlantic. And GDPR has been in train for some time now. Yeah. But I think it was the Cambridge Analytica and, and Facebook uh, uh, debacle that actually brought that front of mind for much of the public, because I don't think the public had really considered it in great detail. And, and actually, we've seen that um, the awareness around privacy has risen considerably, yeah. and companies that are lax or, or possibly unethical in their approach uh, are going to be found not only wanting by the regulators in the different countries and face fines, but I think they're going to be punished severely by their customers. Yeah. And I, and I think you've started to see elements of that. When, you know, related to that, and actually George said similar to this when we were talking to him, but there seems to be also a generational thing going on here as well, which I hadn't thought of, and I'd be interested to hear what you think about it, is that there is a element where maybe the younger generation, particularly at call millennials or whatever, but the, the kids that have come up, they've always had a phone in their hand. You know, they've been connected to this data. They're actually potentially more privacy aware than maybe what those of us who were before that and before the internet, you know, I only you know, met the internet in college and then I didn't really particularly like it. I printed things out. <laughs> that's how I started, right? But I mean, do you, do you feel like that's actually... I think there's a danger in being too generalistic about the, the generational thing yeah. because in some ways, the older generation have grown up with um, those who are, who are around in the, in the Second World War where yeah. uh, careful what you say because people might be listening. Um, they were well, aware maybe that's part of the of difference the, between the Europe and the US is like part of well, that experience, well, maybe, right? But, uh, and then there have been uh, generations that went through the sort of uh, 1960s sort yeah, of freedom true. movement. <laughs> yeah. And then you, you have the current generation who are more technology savvy. And I don't, and I don't actually think that attitudes have changed enormously, though you can spot some trends that are slightly generational. 
One of the big things is that the current generation are that much more tech savvy. So if my father uh, wants to change his privacy settings, he probably won't do it himself. He'll probably yeah, ask me to help him out. <laughs> Whereas my kids wouldn't ask me to help them. So it's an awareness and an ability perspective more than actually like a... Partly it's awareness. I mean, the younger generation do share a lot more. How aware and, and how conscious they are of, of what they share, it, it varies enormously. So I don't think we can generalize here. That does make a lot of sense. So, you know, going forward, you're in the, you're in the middle of all of this. Where are you going to be focused? For, for our, our perspective, uh, we wanted to sort of support the UK government in achieving what it wants to do, yeah. not only in providing better services for less to the general public here in the UK, be they patients, be they citizens want to access services, be they people concerned about uh, defence and their, and, and their security. There are a whole a realm of different services that the government provides which are data-reliant, and if we can improve the efficiency of those and actually improve the delivery of the service, then we will achieve a lot. Then, of course, there's the Brexit headache that we're going to face. Yeah. And we don't yet know how that's going to play out, but we need to actually be quite sophisticated and quite nimble in the way that we are technologically enabled in order to cope with Brexit. And then there is the, the brave new world beyond Brexit where we, we need to be a, a, a perceived internationally as a safe destination for data. Uh, we need to have the right data sharing agreements in place with Europe and the US. And we need to ensure that we're protecting and a thriving digital industry here in the UK ourselves. Traditionally, the UK has been one of the real hubs for the digital and the media industries in Europe. We don't want to lose that leadership position. And many in Europe are envy of us, of our position in those right. realms and want to sort of put up some barriers to digital services from the UK. And we need to sort of seek to overcome that in order to protect our industries. We also need to be concerned about protecting protecting the skills and the uh, young startups in the UK that are going to be the foundation for that technology going forward. In, here in the UK, the government has something called G Cloud, which provides a framework to allow smaller companies to compete with larger ones on a level playing field mm. to offer services to the government. And UK Cloud uh, was one of the, the great examples of a success story there. It's a relatively small company with uh, 200 odd employees, but it's a captured and enormous share of the uh, market for cloud-based services for the government against global competitors like uh, Google and Microsoft and um, uh, Amazon. And that's partly by being nimble and, and partnering with those organizations where it counts. And, and uh, UK Cloud has recently started offering an Azure stack because we saw demand for that type of environment. So right. it's not head-on competition with those global organizations, but it's, it's working with them and working with the best array of technologies to provide sort of a multi-cloud environment with um, a VMware Cloud, Microsoft Cloud, Oracle Cloud, cloud-native environments, um, Kubernetes-type environments for container management, the whole spectrum, but in a super secure environment because yeah. we're providing here services for the UK government and this is really sensitive data. It's people's health records, it's people's tax right. records, it's people's criminal records. They're really sort of sensitive data that um, it's not only needs to be compliant with GDPR, but needs to be super secure because right. it really matters. Well, you, you've got your work cut out for you. Well, it's enough to keep me busy for now. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, I appreciate you taking the time to come on, Bill. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for your time. All right. Masters of Data is brought to you by Sumo Logic. Sumo Logic is a cloud-native machine data analytics platform delivering real-time continuous intelligence as a service 
to build, run, and secure modern applications. Sumo Logic empowers the people who power modern business. For more information, go to sumologic.com.